You like to explore. You like to be in new places, meeting new people, new tastes, new sights, new smells. For some of you, you hear that, you're drooling. Some of you hear that, and you're twitching, right? Those are the nesters. My, my wife is a nester. Uh, I love to travel. Uh, I live by the words of, of two aquatic philosophers. Uh, one of them was, see the line or the sky and the sea meet, or it calls me, I don't know Moana as well, the, the one that I do know better, my era, is I want to be where the people are. <laughs> that I'm all, in a vacuum, I would live out there like a hobo. I actually might just live in a vacuum, right? I don't know. My wife likes to vacuum. So we've got you were just different ends of the spectrum here. I'm sure that everything's going to be fine in our marriage. Uh, but either way, all of us, we're all looking for place. We're all looking for a dwelling, uh, wh- whichever one that it is. But the problem is, neither the nester nor the, the wanderlust seems to be able to find that rest. Uh, some of us are trying to keep our, our roots firmly planted in one place. Uh, some of us think that the answers are out there blowing in the wind. But, but both of us find ourselves kind of chasing the wind. And we find ourselves discontent and dissatisfied, disappointed. And whether you're bored of staying put or you're, you're afraid of being uprooted, we find ourselves restless. But what, what I believe we're going to find in, in the text this morning is the rest is not found in a mere dwelling place, but it's actually dwelling with a person. And we're going to glimpse that this morning. In our, in our study in Exodus, we're looking at uh, chapters 25 to 31, the details of the temple construction. So if you have your Bibles, Exodus 29 is going to be the first place that we jump in there. But I want you to just be thinking about, this is basically like Chip and Joanna Gaines, ancient Hebrew style. We're going to be walking through this. And I know this is why you showed up this morning. This was just about your favorite part of the Bible. I think most of us have our life verse from this section embroidered on a pillow somewhere. Uh, you know, ten cubits shall be thy length. And you're just like, yes, it shall. You just you love, you love it. And now last week, though, what do we see in the case laws? Man, I think we can see the same thing here. What, what can at first just appear to be kind of tedious and boring and, and what even is a cubit? Um, that we, I want again, I think we can see in this portion of our Bibles the beauty of our God. And so I want us to have eyes to see that as God gives instruction to Israel for the construction of the, uh, his dwelling place within these blueprints. He gives us the purpose for all of this. So if you look at Exodus 29, uh, let's, let's jump down to verse 43. And God says this, I, so God speaking, I will also meet with the Israelites there and that place will be consecrated or set apart for my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will con- also consecrate Aaron and his sons who serve me as priests. And I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know, and we've heard this over and over again in our story. They will know I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. So that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He tells us the purpose of the Exodus. That I rescued my people out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, so that I could dwell with them as their God, they as my people. And this has really been ever since the exile from the Garden of Eden, page one, page three of the Bible. The whole question of the Bible has been, how do we get back to the dwelling place of God in Eden? And that's why we're actually going to see a lot of Eden imagery in the temple construction. And I think that's intentional. 
And the question here, though, is how can a holy God once again dwell with sinful men and women? We're going to see how is our sin dealt with so that our God can be dwelt with. I want to credit Bobby Jameson, some of the outline and major thoughts I got from him, credit where credit's due. The first point that I see in our text this morning is that God provides a place to meet with us. He provides a place to meet with us. We read it earlier this morning. We don't always practice these things, but the Lord brings them together. In Psalm 27, David says these words, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. He says, here's the only thing that I want. So we need to have ears to hear. What's the one thing that King David wants? He says, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. He says here that all, all that I want is to, is to be in God's house. Why? Not the place. That's where I get to see the beauty of my God. That's where I see God himself. And so we, we see in this, it, it's interesting, in the 40 chapters of Exodus, 13 of the 40 chapters are dedicated to the details of the, the building of this temple and, 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 and all that comes with it. So that should highlight to us how important this was uh, to God for, for them to know. And, and these might at times feel like painstaking details as you're reading through it. And it's okay if every moment isn't just kind of this moment of weeping for you as you read through the details. But what we want to see here, in the, the details should point us to a reality. How God told them should point us to the beauty of his holiness. That how detailed he is. He says, there's only one way to come. And this is exactly how you construct my dwelling place. And then this is exactly how you enter into my holy place. But then we also see the beauty of the grace of our God. Because in this, God revealed to his people how to access him. Like, this, the temple wasn't built to keep people out and restrict. It was to gift them, grant them access into his holy presence. And so we think of Exodus 25 to 31 as kind of a divine open house as we enter into this place to, to teach us, like David asked, how do I step into your holy place, Lord, so that I can see your beauty? So how do, how do the details of this specifically uh, give us a glimpse of his beauty? So um, we see that the temple here was actually a, a rectangular, uh, it is a tent, because remember, they're in the wilderness, they're on the move, so this needed to be portable. The temple was about 45 by 15 feet uh, and then there was surrounded uh, by this courtyard, uh, kind of fenced in there by uh, 150 feet by about 75 feet. And then when you first would enter into the courtyard, the first thing you saw was this bronze altar. And this bronze altar is where sacri sacrifices were continuously altered, so, uh, offered. So jump back up to uh, verse 38 here of, uh, Genesis, of Exodus 29. It says, this is what you are to offer regularly on the altar every day every day two-year-old lambs in the morning offer one lamb and at twilight offer the other lamb so the first thing that would happen was they would offer the sacrifice of the that's the first thing that would happen in the day and the last thing that would happen is another sacrifice and so the people were all gathered around you'll we'll see that they're instructed to gather around the temple where this were the ta tabernacle where they'd pitch their tents and the idea was all the focus, the centerpiece of the people's dwelling in the desert was to be this tabernacle. And when they would uh, sacrifice, what would happen? It's burning, and then there's smoke rising. And what have we seen over and over again in Exodus? Burning bush, Sinai, fire and smoke are symbolic of God's presence. And so what he's saying is, I want my people to gather around me. And the first thing you see at night, uh, the first thing you see in the morning is my presence. 
And the last thing you see before your head hits the pillow is my presence, that I am with you, and that sacrifice that you're offering on the altar is to be evidence of, of how you are going to be able to be accepted by me, and I myself will provide the sacrifice needed. So then we, we move next to the, the next thing on the, on, the, on the docket is the bronze basin. And this bronze basin uh, was no, no people outside of the priests were allowed past this point actually in, to go into uh, the tabernacle. And, and then here only the priests could enter with stipulation. So you look, flip over to Exodus uh, 30, one chapter over, verse 20. And he gives this instruction. He's talking about the basin or some of your translations might say the bronze labor. It's a wash station. It says in verse 20, whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister, these are the priests, by burning a food offering to the Lord, they must wash with water, and here's the reason, so that they will not die. Important detail there, right? If you don't wash up, you'll die. This is a parenting technique that we're going to try with Lucy. <laughs> Encourage bathing, I don't know. It's our first time, we'll, we'll see. This is how holy God is. This is how seriously um, he takes worship of him. He says, listen, if you're not clean, you actually can't enter my presence without dying. This is real. And, and then let's, let's, let's go inside, shall we? You'll, just, you'll love the entryway. And look at this fun little graphic that I put together for you, for your viewing pleasure. Uh, we see, first of all, there's a lampstand in there. And it's, what's interesting is it's built like a tree to look like it's in bloom. So again, we're reminded, this is to kind of look like the tree of life that we saw um, in, 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 in Eden. And then we see a table of bread, or showbread, your translation might say. So there were supposed to be 12 fresh loaves continually there about God's continual uh, provisions. We think about the manna. But then also what was cool is the way they set this up is the lampstand was actually was shining light onto the bread. It's symbolically onto the people of Israel. And what's one of their common prayers? May his face shine upon us. And so we also see then, uh, right before the veil, is this altar of incense. And this is where the priests would offer incense offerings. And, and as that smoke rise would rise, that was symbolic of the prayers of the priests on behalf of the people rising to their God. But then, uh, on the other, right behind the altar of incense was this big veil. And it's interesting, look at the detail of the veil. Flip back over to chapter 26 and verse 31. And he talks about this, what's on the veil itself. And then we'll talk about the purpose. He says in uh, 2631, you are to make a curtain of purple, uh, blue, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it. So these cherubim uh, were, were seen, these are angels. And they're God's like holy protection ninjas. And that you see this wherever they are. So here they're protecting this, the holy of holies. And we see what happened in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned and they're driven out of the garden, what does he place station in front of the, the entrance back into Eden? He puts cherubim there to protect his holy place, which again was really a grace for the people so they wouldn't die. But then uh, you would go in and we'll see who gets to and when. They get to go into the Holy of Holies. And really in the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, there was really only one thing there and that was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of it was uh, the, the stone tablets of, of the law and a few other things. So if you look over to 2514, it, it tells us um, an interesting little fact about this. It says uh, the poles, 2514, uh, the poles are to, am I, am I on the right passage there? 2514, yes. Uh, make the poles, insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. So 
they would put these poles into the ark. And, and the reason was, if they touched the ark itself, they would die. We're going to see that come in a later story, right, in David's era. The idea was lift it, move it with the poles, don't directly touch the ark itself. Now, on the top of this ark, there was what was called the mercy seat. Uh, on the mercy seat, there's the there. um, And the, the, on the seat, there was this lid. Now, look at uh, 2517. And it talks to us about, it says, make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. And there's two cherubim of gold that are over the top of the mercy seat. And then down to verse 22, it says, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. So this, the mercy seat itself was this, was this gold covering over the ark. And then there are these cherubim, once again, protecting the holy space. That in a lot of ways, this was, this was seen, this space right here was seen as God's throne, where his, spe most specifically, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, this was where his space, now notice here, what's there above the seat? It's a blank space. There's, there's nothing there. And what did God command them? Don't make a graven image of me. God is spirit, and we don't, we don't reduce him, domesticate him into an image. And so here God met, who is spirit, met them in this, this space. And once a year, the high priest would sprinkle blood on this mercy seat, making atonement for the sins of the whole nation for the year. But how do we, how do all of us, how are we all in this room today able to permanently enter into the beauty of our God? To do that, we need a better meeting place. We need a better tabernacle. And brothers and sisters, we have that. We open up the Gospel of John. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwell in the Greek was actually the same. It was basically saying, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. At this time, God came not in a building, but in the form of a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we see Jesus really being the true and better tabernacle. And it's so beautiful as we read our New Testaments that every part of what we just went over, it points us to the reality. It's a shadow that points us to the reality of who Jesus is. This is where God meets us in the person of Jesus. As we go to the bronze altar, Jesus says that he is the perfect sacrifice in Hebrews 9. And in fact, he is God's presence himself, as that smoke and fire were to indicate. And that wash basin, or here it's called the, the laver, where you were cleansed. That through Christ's blood, we are cleansed. Or as Ephesians 5 says, through the washing of the water of the word. And then you walk into the holy place, that golden lampstand. What did Jesus say in John 8? I am the light of the world. And on that table of showbread, Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. And of course, we read uh, that, that, that Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, that moment before he died, he was praying for us. That's what the priests were to do, to intercede for the people and pray to God. And we see Jesus doing that before his death, and that's actually what he's doing right now as he prays for us. And then we also see that veil, what happened the moment that Jesus died. That veil in the, the temple was torn into symbolic access into the holy place of God, where Jesus himself once again embodies, in Hebrews 10, the mercy seat of God, that Jesus is the place where we can meet God, where his holiness and grace can both be found in his beauty as the veil has been torn, and we, as his new people, are granted permanent access. Jesus is where our sins are dealt with, so that within him, our God can be dwelt with. And now we can gaze on the beauty of our God in Jesus without falling down dead. 
That's what Corinthians says, we now have unveiled faces and can behold his glory, intimate access because of Christ's atonement. Now, the tabernacle was a specific place where you could glimpse the beauty of God. Well, where do we glimpse that beauty today? We no longer have to take a flight over to Sinai Peninsula and go up a mountain to see that beauty. We no longer have to travel to Jerusalem and go into the temple to see the Shekinah glory. The place where his beauty is best glimpsed today is the new temple. And brothers, this blows my mind, brothers and sisters. We now are called, Paul calls us this several times in the New Testament, we are that temple. We are now the, the place where our God resides. And so now we actually, as these little portable temples, our mission is to go show the world the beauty of our God and who he is. What did we say last week about the law? The law shows God's character. It shows who our God is. And so now that's our job. That we, our job as, we, as image bearers in Christ is to go out and show the world God's beauty. And how do we do that? I love how First John explains this. He says, no one has ever seen God. He's a spirit. But it says, if, and here it is, if we love one another, God remains in us. That's that same word, dwells tabernacles in us and his love is made complete or evident in us the best way that you and I can show the world a glimpse of our God's beauty is in the tiny little almost barely noticeable ways that we love our neighbor love our family member love that hard to love person as we would love ourselves. but how do we the, we saw the problem is that we're sinners and just like Israel we cannot just waltz into God's presence so how do we actually gain access into this space? Well, for that, we needed a priest. And, and that's the other thing that God provides here, is that God provides a priest who represents us. We see in, in the chapters, uh, Exodus 28 and 29, we see two different things. We see a kind of detail on the garments that the priests are to wear and the consecration process that they are to go through. So first of all, the garments. I want to zoom in on a couple of, a couple of things in particular. They, had this, they wore this thing called an ephod. And the ephod was kind of this, uh, this breast piece that was held, the, the, a vest of sorts, with these shoulder pieces that would hold it together. Beautiful little ensemble. Uh, you can find it on Etsy. And, and on them, there were these 12 uh, precious stones. And, and on, on the breast piece, each of those 12 stones had one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And on the shoulder, there were six tribes' names over here and six tribes' names over here. And there's this beautiful uh, representation going on. Flip over to chapter uh, 28, uh, verse 29. And you can see them talk about this. 28, 29. says, whenever he, this is Aaron, whenever he enters the sanctuary, Aaron is to carry the names, or maybe your translation says, bear the names of Israel's sons over his heart on the breastpiece for decisions. This is a continual reminder to the Lord. And, and later we'll say he bears the guilt, the guilt of the, of the people. So here you have Aaron, the high priest, He's the only one that's allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. But he bears the names and the guilt of all of the people of Israel on his own person. And you can see where that's starting to go, right? And then we get into some details. You ready for the bells? So there are these little bells ringling in on the bottom of their, the hem of their robe. And, and this, is, this is so weird. So look at verse 33. Uh, make pomegranates of blue. Oh, here, I have a, a zoomed in picture. Um, somebody recreated this, had way too much time on their hands. Uh, make pomegranates. So we see pomegranates. What do we, more Eden imagery, right? 
fruit, trees, we're back in the garden. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn on its lower hem and all around it. Put gold bells between them all the way around so that the gold bells and pomegranates alternate around the lower hem of the robe. Remember, all the details are here. Then verse 35, the robe will be worn by Aaron whenever he ministers and its sounds, sound will be heard when he enters the sanctuary before the Lord and when he exits so that he does not die. So the people are listening as he goes into the temple and if those bells stop ringling and that tells you he didn't do the right consecration process, and he did. Now, there's some wives' tales that there was a rope attached to their ankle, and they would then pull them back out, because if you go in there to get them, what's going to happen to you, right? We just start stack them up. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but it's, it's what, the, what we do see here is, again, how important it was to come in the right way, and these bells underline that. And then I love, in verse 41, it, actually, it says that God clothed them. The, he clothed the priests. And that same word where he says clothed here is the exact same word that in the garden, remember what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to put on some fig leaves to cover themselves and God said, you can't cover your, your own sins. But what did God do? In his grace, he provided a covering for them. And through the death of an animal, the shedding of innocent blood, he clothes them in animal skins. Same word here for clothed them. See, these priests couldn't clothe themselves in holiness to come into God's presence. And that's the same for us today. Like we can't clothe, when we try to clothe ourselves in our own righteousness, the Bible says that's filthy rags in God's sight. But what do we sing in the beautiful song, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So we see here then the, the consecration process. How do, they, how do they present themselves as holy, dressed in God's garments? Well, we see this, this process. Uh, the word consecrate means to set apart. So it's set apart for, for a specific, a holy uh, use. And that's what this process was, that they were to be set apart from the rest of Israel to serve God in the tabernacle on behalf of the people. But here's the thing. The Levites bore, like, for them to be able to bear the sins of another, they themselves had to be pure. But we know that the Levites are just as sinful as the other 11 tribes. So they had to go through this seven-day process of being consecrated, uh, set apart to go into the temple. Um, now, I hope none of you have seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, but if you have, uh, there, we can have a But here, here's this, this is bloody. This, I mean, this, this, we, we need the visceral uh, experience that this would have been. We need to put ourselves in, in their shoes, in their sandals here. Look it over at uh, chapter 29, uh, verse 15. And this is, this is literally a bloody mess. It says in verse 15, take one ram. And Aaron and his sons are to lay their hands on the ram's head. You are to slaughter the ram, take its blood, and splatter it on all sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces. Watch its entrails and legs. And place them with its head and its pieces on the altar. Then burn the whole ram on the altar. It's a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You're to take a, a second ram. And Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the ram's head, slaughter the ram, take some of its blood, and put it on Aaron's right ear lobe, mm, and, and his son's right ear lobes, and the thumbs of their right hands, and the big toes of their right feet. Splatter the remaining blood on all sides of the altar. Take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle them on Aaron and his garments as well as on his sons and their garments. So he and his garments will be holy as well as his sons and their garments." So you see this irony here of them being cleansed by having blood splattered and placed all over them. And this is a symbolic cleansing through the death of a blood sacrifice that they would be set, that they would be cleansed and set apart as God's chosen instruments. And this, once again, was just a symbolic shadow 
of the reality that would come in our true and our better high priest. When Jesus came to tabernacle among us, he came for a job, to serve us as our high priest. But he didn't need a seven-day consecration process like these priests because as God, he already was pure. He already was perfect. Have you ever wondered, like, what is Jesus doing right now? Like, we, we often talk about what he did for us and when he's coming back someday. Like, what is Jesus doing? I always want, like, what is he doing right now? And, and the Bible does tell us a little bit about that. We know that Jesus is in a resurrected body, which I don't know, like, physically, then what that means geographically. Where is he? That, those are mysteries for us. But after he resurrected, what does it say? He ascended back into the presence of his Father, the actual Holy of Holies, into the presence of God himself. And I've loved that uh, Pastor Ross has had us in, the, the, in Hebrews in our reading plan. If, if you don't know about that Bible reading plan, go to our homepage. There's, a, there's, a, there's some links there to connect with that. And, and we've been reading through Hebrews, which is just parallels so well with, with Exodus. And here in Hebrews 9, it says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, that was only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. So he says this whole thing, this earthly tent, that was just a shadow of the reality of, of the real God in his real throne room. And, and just like the priests wore those ephods, bearing the names of the people, Jesus enters into the actual throne room of the Father, and he bears on his heart the names, not just of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he bears the guilt for the sins of all nations for all time. That's what we sing, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven right now he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Hallelujah. You know, I so often hear people talk about a lack of hope in their lives. I had a, a hard conversation uh, recently with somebody who said, man, I just, I hope I'm just doing enough. I hope I'm on the right path so that God will accept me when I get there. Friend, that is not where our hope can be grounded. Our hope is grounded in one place. And the next chapter of Hebrews talks about that. Every day, so this was the old way, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sins. Those priests and those bulls and rams didn't actually have the power to save us from our sins. Then he says, but this man, Jesus Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You sit down when you're done. This is a Messiah mic drop. He, one sacrifice for all time, and he is finished. And it says, for by one offering, he has perfected for how long? Forever. Those who are being sanctified. And he says, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. When will he remember them again? Never. Now, there, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Jesus does not have to get it back up on that cross year after year after year. One time for all time. And look at me. Like, there is no other place for protection from the wrath of God. Not in my good works. Only in the finished good work of Jesus. And not just protection from God's wrath, but to the positive, sweet, intimate access into the throne room of God access to God himself. And you think about the implications of this. Like, what we now have in Christ, like Israel could only come into the presence of God 
in one building one time every year. And only one person could, could come into that place. And only after reenacting this Texas chainsaw massacre thing over all these animals. And even then, only for a few fleeting moments with some bells ringing out of the fear that they might die. But right now in Christ, like, we have 24-hour-a-day access to the throne room of God. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. 366 on leave here. Right? We, right here, are as holy as he treated that space. We now individually and together, are that holy space where God meets man. I can approach the holy God right now by his grace. Like that's, that is mind-blowing. Do we, do we accept this all-access pass, though? Like do I find my rest in the only place where rest is available, or is my heart still wandering? And Jesus says here, as he makes access into the throne room, he says... Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all those who are restless, and I will give you what? Rest. Just take my hand, take the hand of your priest, and we're going to walk hand in hand together through that veil, and it's cool. I have already paid the entrance fee. You are covered in my blood. And we can together enter my Father's throne room, the place of his beauty, of both his holiness and his grace. And I don't know how you come into the room this morning, how restless you're feeling. I think we all are to some degree. And I don't know where you've been looking for rest, but I want to just gently ask, has that been working for you? Like, are you finding rest there? Are, are you finding, have you alleviated your anxiety in those places? Have, have you, have, has it given you lasting satisfaction? For the wanderer, like, we're not going to find it in the next vacation, in the next trip. We're not going to find it in more money. We're not going to find it in better sex. We're not going to find it with more sunshine. We're not going to find it with that better career. And for those of us who, who want to f be firmly planted at home, we are not going to find it in the fabricated nest of stability for ourselves, where we can just protect our family and our traditions and our values. That if I can just get the safer car, finally get the right retirement fund set up, if I can get my kids into a good college, if I have a sufficient amount of doctor's checkups, everything will be okay. I also want to say that these things that we're chasing after, this restlessness can actually be a good thing if we allow it to point us to the place of real rest. C.S. Lewis said it so well. What else is new? These things are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. Our restlessness is, is actually evidence that we were created for a better place, but not just a physical location, a place of relationship with a person. And Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself. Like, that's why we were created. And so therefore, our hearts will be restless, he said, until they find their place. And the only place that we can find true rest, and that's in the person of God himself through the person of Jesus. You know, the tabernacle was instructed for Israel as a temporary dwelling. It was literally a tent, right? 
and it, it, it pointed them forward to their permanent home. They were going to cross the Jordan, and they were going to settle into the land and build a temple that was meant to last and dwell with their God in a place that was meant to last. But we know how the story goes. They didn't find rest there because, again, it's not finally in a, in a, in a physical place. Because even this was a shadow of the reality that would come. That Jesus alone is the meeting place where we can dwell with God. And Jesus alone is the priest who could represent us to grant us access into that place. And like Israel, you and I, like we are still pilgrims. We are still sojourners. Like we have Christ now. We have access to him today. But we are made for, for a better land. And those restless desires point us toward that reality. And I love, in the final chapters of the Bible, it talks about this new creation where at last, what we have now, what we can see right now by faith, will one day become sight. It says in Revelation 21, Then I saw, John said, a new heaven and a new earth. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, because now we can see. We can see God. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Now what is the new temple going to look like in this new city? He says, I did not see a temple in it. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of the God illuminates it and the lamp is the Lamb. In the new creation to come, God's presence will cover the earth. This, this whole earth becomes his dwelling place with mankind. Not a temple anymore because it's because God himself is here in Jesus. And that we don't need that lampstand to shine light. In fact, we don't even need the sun itself because light will somehow emanate from the person of God himself. And John so sweetly says, those of us who have this hope that this is where it's all going, if we have this hope, he says, it purifies us. It sets us apart for God and for God alone. And, and so for today, it sets us apart from the restlessness that the world experiences so that when I'm on the way to work tomorrow and someone cuts me off or I get that phone call, the devastating news that changes life forever, when I stumble back into that same sin again, I can find rest for my weary soul. And I can see the beauty of Christ today by faith but one day, brothers and sisters, we will be able to see that beauty by sight. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in your word, you line out the seriousness of our sin, that you love us, created us for a relationship, but because of that, we can't just waltz into your presence. The details of how we come are so important. Father, if there's somebody here today that's been looking for access to you in any other way, believer or unbeliever, that you would just lovingly point them toward repentance, turning back to the only access you've granted, and that's in the finished work and in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And Father, we could experience that, that joy to be as we decrease and you increase. We could find that joy now. Would you give us, strengthen us by your spirit with hope to look forward to that coming reality when our faith will be made sight. And Lord, would you change our hearts so that we could say like David, one thing we ask that we would see, your beauty and your dwelling place in Christ. It's only where the, where the cross ran red that we can find cleansing and we can find access with our Heavenly Father. In the beautiful name of 
of our better high priest. But all God's people say. Thank you.